Saint Oscar Romero once said, there are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. Welcome to the second episode of Saint Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP if you want to be cool. Yes, I'm still trying to make SDP happen. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because it's time for all of us to realize that those who are suffering, those who are anxious, depressed, traumatized, those whose eyes have cried have something very important to teach all of us if only we would be willing to sit with them in their suffering and listen. We like to kick it off around here with trending topics. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. We got quite a bit of feedback and questions around the idea of finding a Catholic therapist, a topic we briefly discussed in the last episode, and a lot of it especially seems rooted in the fear that a non-Catholic therapist won't understand where we're coming from. At Tommy Catrone tossed this specific question to the show, quote, If I were to see a non-Catholic therapist, it feels like it would be impossible to talk about my faith relationship to someone who doesn't know and never has known God. If I have a serious psychological wound that stems from my relationship with God, how can I express the issue to someone who doesn't believe. Thanks for putting the question so many have down into words. My biggest concern with people exclusively seeking out a Catholic therapist is that I don't want people to think finding a Catholic therapist is more important than finding a therapist who can help with the specific symptoms or situation we find ourselves battling. As an example, a therapist who goes to Mass on Sundays and prays the rosary every day is great, but it doesn't really mean much for you if you're suffering from obsessive-compulsive disorder and they've never helped anyone with this issue. I understand the idea of feeling weird exploring deep psychological issues connecting to our relationship with God with someone who doesn't understand them. And if that's what the focus of what you need to work on is, perhaps that would be a great reason to seek out a therapist who could relate. But I want to remind everyone again that therapists are open to learning about a culture or experience they don't know about to help them help you. We shouldn't shy away from being willing to express why our faith matters to help them understand. It happens literally every day with me. I've never tried methamphetamine or suffered from hallucinations or been a child of divorce, but the people I meet with help show me what those experiences are, are like, and I can join with them, have empathy for them, and walk alongside them even though I've never experienced it myself. Next up, I received an email about something I briefly mentioned as a guest on a different podcast that spoke to the person who heard it, and it made me realize that perhaps more people would benefit from hearing it. I was recommending the importance of prayer and fasting for helping us grow in holiness, and in relation to fasting, gave this disclaimer, unless you've struggled with an eating disorder. The wonderful person who sent me the email said that was the first time I have ever heard a Catholic adult say that. Blessed be God that this comment meant something to our wonderful emailer. So let me say it again. If you have struggled with an eating disorder in the past or are struggling with one now, fasting is more than likely not a healthy part of your spiritual journey, and that is 100% okay. You aren't broken. You aren't doing something wrong by eating on Good Friday. You aren't any less of a Catholic because of this struggle. You deserve all the respect, encouragement, and support in the world. And God loves you so deeply and understands your heart so completely completely that he's over the moon with you, even if the pressure to fast, thanks to everyone talking about it in real life and on social media, might kick your scrupulosity off something fierce. The opportunity to fast in other ways um, that will be healthy for you are key, like from social media, from screen time, from gossip, etc. It's not 
any less valid than fasting from food. If someone says that to you, if someone says, well, fasting from social media is well and good, but it's really all about fasting from food. That's the point. If you don't do that, you're weak or something like that. Pray for that person. They mean well, but they're wrong, especially for those of us who have struggled with or are struggling with an eating disorder. Please know I'm praying for you that you never feel less than anyone else because of your struggle and that you're never faced with someone making you feel guilty because of your struggle and that you know that God will reward you for carrying your cross even though it doesn't feel like it he really will so each episode I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics it's called friend request and today I'm introducing you to venerable Matt Talbot Yes, I realize I'm going heavy on the Irish Saints, but I'm 64% Irish, so what can I say? Matt Talbot was born on May 2nd, 1856, the second of 12 children. At the age of 12, he began to work for a wine merchant and inevitably started sampling the goods. By the age of 13, he was considered a hopeless alcoholic. He spent most of his money and ran up huge debts at the local pubs and even got to the point of pawning his boots to get money for alcohol. On one occasion, he actually stole a fiddle from a street performer and sold it to keep up the habit. One night, no longer uh, able to drink on his credit, he sat outside a local pub and waited for his friends to invite him in for a drink on them. Everyone passed him by, though, and didn't even offer him a kind word, and this was his low point. He realized something had to change. He went home to announce to his mother that he was, quote, taking the pledge and vowing not to drink for three months. As he worked on his sobriety for three months and beyond, he found strength in prayer, began to attend daily mass, and read religious books and pamphlets. He repaid all his debts. Having searched for the fiddler whose instrument he had stolen and failing to find him, he gave money to the church to have mass said for him as a way of making amends. He became incredibly devout, styling his spirituality after the 6th century Irish monks. He fasted, he wore a chain as penance and a sign of his total consecration to Jesus through Mary. He slept on a plank bed with a piece of timber for his pillow. He rose at 5 a.m. every day so as to attend Mass before work. At work, whenever he had spare time, he found a quiet place to pray, and he spent most of every evening on his knees. On Sunday, he attended several Masses, walking quickly between them with his head down. He died of heart failure on the way to mass on the morning of june 7th 1925 no one was able to identify him until his body was brought to the hospital and his clothing was removed and the chains they found around his body helped lead his sister knowing it was him because she alone was aware of his spirituality matt once said never be too hard on the man who can't give up drink it's as hard to give up the drink as it is to raise the dead to life again but both are possible and even easy for our lord we have only to depend on him Wrapping up this section with a prayer. First, the prayer for the canonization of Matt Talbot. Lord, in your servant Matt Talbot, you have given us a wonderful example of triumph over addiction, of devotion to duty, and of lifelong reverence of the Holy Sacrament. May his life of prayer and penance give us courage to take up our cross and follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, if it be your will that your beloved servant should be glorified by your church, Make known by your heavenly favors the power he enjoys in your sight. We ask this through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
and the prayer for those suffering from dependence to substances. God of mercy, we bless you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who ministered to all who came to him. Give your strength to all those bound by the chains of addiction. Enfold them in your love and restore them to the freedom of God's children. Lord, look with compassion on all those who have lost their health and freedom. Restore to them the assurance of your unfailing mercy and strengthen them in the work of recovery. To those who care for them, grant patient understanding and a love that perseveres. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Venerable Matt Talbot, pray for us. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. First off, a listener email that I think will resonate with a lot of people. Where to turn for help for yourself or others when feeling suicidal? What happens when you reach out for help? What happens when you call or text a suicide hotline? How do we keep fighting for a loved one over a long period of time? And what are some practical ways to combat suicidal thoughts? And finally, why should you get help? So there's a lot there, and I'm guessing the topic uh, and some of these questions will have to be addressed on various episodes as the topic of suicide deserves to be explored in great depth. But let's go through this quickly to at least start the discussion. And feel free to reach out via DM or email to narrow down a specific question if you have one. Okay, where to turn? First, if you or a someone you know is feeling imminently suicidal, like you're feeling like it might happen today, you've got the pills, you've got a weapon, you've got something set up that you intend to use to end it all, it might be time to call 911. Having the means, intent, and plan to commit suicide is a literal emergency. Much like someone who stops breathing or is having a heart attack, suicide is an emergency and must be dealt with in that way. So let's start with that. Now, if you're feeling suicidal but don't currently have the intent, the means, or the plan set up, it's time to get help in a non-emergent manner. It's urgent at this point, but not a 911 situation. In this case, it's time to reach out, connect with the mental health resources available to you via your insurance and means. Call or text a suicide hotline to get advice. Texting home to 741-741 is a fantastic way to get connected. These are trained support staff who can talk with you, help you find resources, and give you hope in what feels like a hopeless situation. How do you keep fighting for a loved one? First off, remember that they aren't making a choice to feel suicidal. This is a symptom of their mental health experience. Feeling suicidal is nothing to feel guilty about, nothing where you should feel like you're doing something wrong. No one wants to experience these feelings, but we all do in some measure at some point in our lives, and we need non-judgmental help. The best thing to do is to let a loved one know that you aren't scared of being with them in the darkness. You aren't going to judge them. You aren't afraid of hearing what they are honestly feeling and then being there to respond in the most helpful manner, like we discussed earlier, calling 911 if needed or helping them connect to help if it isn't an emergency in that moment. Practical ways to combat the thoughts. Okay, here I have to point out that we have to make a plan for suicide when we aren't feeling suicidal. When you're feeling suicidal, it's no time to be creative and think about what could help, what has worked in the past. This has to be put down on paper or put down in your phone. When you're feeling well, when you're feeling future-oriented, then during times where suicidal thoughts are coming down upon you, you can pull out the checklist and work through them. Things like calling a specific person, going for a walk, and trying to identify each of the colors of the rainbow appearing naturally in order as you walk to get yourself outside of your thoughts and into the present moment. Prayers that might help calm your mind. Cataloging the blessings you have that would keep you from ending it all. Family, friends, pets, what we call protective factors. Having this made ahead of time is key because you can't be expected to think of all this when you're being oppressed by these thoughts. Another thing, if you've lost a loved one to suicide, it was not your fault. 
It was not because you should have done something or shouldn't have done something. Depression, addiction, and all the other things that leave our loved ones feeling suicidal is a literal killer, and our society doesn't recognize this. All of us try our best with what we know in any given situation, and going back and blaming ourselves isn't helpful even though it is human nature. Last, real quick, why should you get help? Because you are worth it. You may not feel that way. You may not feel like you have value. You may feel like you're just a burden, but that is the illness, the pain lying to you. It isn't true, even though it feels so much like it is. Even if you've gone for help and it didn't work in the past, try again, reach out again. Never give up because we need you here. We need your presence, your witness, and you are loved. Next up at Barbara Mick 48 or MC 48, sorry, Barbara tweeted in to bring up the topic of postpartum depression and the factors that can lead to it. She said, quote, I have been in a heated discussion with my doctor. We're friendly. And I maintain that hospitals do not care enough for mom after baby is born regarding rest and sleep. Oh, man, I could go on and on with this one. Thank you for this tweet. Postpartum depression is probably one of the most underrated and underchecked for conditions we see in the mental health world. Women are constantly told that most women get the baby blues, but it's rare to get PPD. And because of that messaging, women who are suffering PPD are left to think it's just the regular old baby blues. And that leads to a lack of reaching out for help. This, combined with the fact that screening for PPD is woefully insufficient, leads to women suffering and not getting the care they need, which impacts their ability to form a bond with their baby, which leads to them feeling guilty and even more depressed, and the cycle goes on and on, all while well-meaning loved ones hear their struggles and they say things like, yep, it's hard, or yep, it's tough when you don't get enough sleep. Okay, I know I need to calm down a bit, but this issue drives me crazy. We're talking about 20% of women, by the way. 20% of all mothers get PPD. And the prevalence is higher among those who have suffered depression or anxiety in the past. Therapy and medication need to be the first line of help and need to be readily available right from the recovery room in the hospital. And husbands, be willing to help your wives. Be willing to be the one who makes the call to help connect your wife with care. And don't just ignore your wife and expect things to get better or for her to fix herself. One final question for this episode comes from an anonymous listener, quote, a part of me feels as though if I prayed better or had a better faith life, I wouldn't need therapy. While I love the idea of giving God my anxiety, that doesn't always work for me on its own. Not being able to do this sometimes causes me strain in my faith life. Oh man, I feel you on this one and thank you so much for sending it in. When our son was diagnosed in utero with a condition that was incompatible with life, <clears throat> and it became more and more obvious that a miracle wasn't in the cards, I was overwhelmed with the feeling that I must not have prayed the right way. If only I would have said the right prayers the right number of times and actually believed in my heart that God would do something, then a miracle would have happened, but I didn't, and I felt like a failure. Once I moved through the situation and came to a better space, I realized that God isn't up there waiting for us to pray correctly before he grants our prayers. Instead, I had to come to the very hard understanding that the terrible things that happen in our lives happen even when we pray for them not to because God's first priority is giving us the conditions that will make us saints. And unfortunately, those conditions are typically terrible from our limited vantage point. If I prayed better, I wouldn't need therapy is something a lot of people feel, something that is a result of our faith's message that all we need to do is pray to solve our problems rather than pray and act. And the cultural idea that we should be able to overcome any obstacle on our own, an idea that sees therapy as a weak person's route, is also ruining us. This couldn't be further from the truth. In reality, God created us for community, and he provides us with the help we need through persons, be it a priest, a friend, a 
therapist or Jesus Christ himself. Realizing we need to get help through the support of another person isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. The last point raised, the idea of offering up our anxiety not always working is a great point to end on. Offering up our symptoms, our negative thoughts, our pain, our anxiety is incredibly awesome. But if the anxiety persists, that doesn't mean offering it up didn't work. Offering it up isn't like, hey, I'm going to offer up this panic attack, so take it away. Instead, it's like I'm full of anxiety and I offer it up, meaning I'm willing to experience this anxiety because I know God will take my suffering and apply it to someone in need. Maybe to me, sure. But since we're all connected in the body of Christ, we are also willing to let him apply it wherever it is most needed in the moment. Offering it up doesn't solve our suffering. Instead, it gives our suffering purpose and meaning, which is a whole different ballgame. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to discuss them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you don't feel like you're in a place where you can even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you, and so will St. Dymphna. 